You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Over the past year, more and more people have found themselves without hope and longing for hope. Economic shutdown, loss of jobs, fear in relation to security and health, hope is something that we have longed for collectively, and it is something that at times has been difficult to find. Longing for hope, searching for hope, is not exclusive to us in the 21st century. It is a connection point between us and the church in the first century. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he commended their he commended of, but he was concerned about their hope. This is a pattern that we see in a variety of his letters, this triad of terms, faith, hope, and love. We read about them in the Corinthian letters. If you read through 1 Thessalonians, you hear this similar language where Paul commends the faith and the love of the church, but he instructs them in regard to their hope. That same pattern is present here, and it suggests that among the Ephesians in the first century church, as Paul writes to them, That there is some deficiency, there's something there that needs to be strengthened in terms of their hope. I've heard of your faith, it's well known. I've heard of your love toward all the saints, and I don't, for this reason, he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, as I remember your prayers. But then he goes on to say, as God makes Himself known in deeper and deeper and richer and richer ways, that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians will be illumined and enlightened so that they may find hope. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. I want you to know the hope to which you have been called. The question then becomes, how do they and how do we discover this hope of which Paul writes, and how do we cultivate a deeper experience of the hope which he writes? And the answer to that question comes in the logic of verses 17 and 18. Where Paul writes, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So this this sense of God revealing himself, revealing his character, revealing his power. I pray that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. For Paul, there's this central connection between knowledge of God in Christ and a greater experience of hope. 
So we might say for Paul in Ephesians, it's running from 15, verse 115 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. This theme permeates this passage so that we could perhaps sum it up together by saying that deeper knowledge of Christ cultivates a greater experience of hope. You want to experience hope, you need Jesus. You're losing out on hope, you're longing for hope, eyes on Jesus. A deeper knowledge of Christ, an ever-growing knowledge and experience of Him cultivates a greater experience of hope. That was the case for the Ephesians in the first century. It is the case for us in the 21st century. And Paul then expounds this hope through knowledge of Jesus. So let's take those in turn. As Paul describes what it means to know God, he describes knowledge of God in a Christ-centric way. So Jesus is at the center of knowing God. I mean, take a listen to how he puts this. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So knowing God, for Paul, is not something that can be done apart from knowing Christ. The God to be known is the God who makes himself known in Jesus. So knowledge of God is knowledge of God in Christ. And then I find myself struck as I reflected on this over the week. The way Paul talks about believers coming to know him. I'm struck because this is addressed to believers, not unbelievers. And when we talk about knowing Jesus, a lot of times we associate that language with our conversion experience. Where I didn't know Jesus And I heard the gospel, and now I know Jesus. But for Paul, it sounds like knowledge of Christ, knowing Him, is not kind of a one-time deal. I mean, obviously, there is a crucial, essential first moment of coming to know Jesus. A lifelong relationship has got to have a starting point. Many of us can remember that moment when we met Christ for the first time and we celebrate that and other others of us maybe perhaps if we grew up in a Christian home we don't necessarily remember that moment but we see evidence of his grace and cultivating that that significant central relationship with him in our lives but for Paul knowledge of Christ is something is a process is an experience that goes deeper and never ceases he says to the Ephesians, as you come to know Him. These are not unbelievers. They're not faithless people. They are people of whose faith Paul has heard. They love Jesus. They are committed to Him. But crucial to their continued faithfulness, crucial to their continued experience of all of the riches that Christ offers them is an ever-growing knowledge of Him. So Paul said, his prayer is that, you know, I've got all these things that I want for you. I want your, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, verse 18. I want you to know the hope that he's called you to. I want you to know the, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. I want you to know the immeasurable 
immeasurable power, greatness of his power. So these all these, I mean, and the, and the language is just over the top, isn't it? Immeasurable power. Immeasurable riches. But the crucial thing for these believers to know those immeasurable realities is coming to know Jesus more deeply. And that strikes me. It strikes me because I've walked with Jesus for a long time. Most of my life. I'm one of those folks who I, I don't really, I don't remember not knowing Jesus. My parents were faithful people and they immersed us in the scriptures and they immersed us in the life of the church as children and they declared to us the gospel from infancy and into our toddlers childhood and adolescence and they formed us in these things. And it's easy if that's your story to kind of slide into a, a coasting gear. The church is my thing. It's what I do. I've always been here. I've always been a part of it. It's always been a part of my life and it's just there. And it's easy to forget that there is a crucial ongoing cultivation of an ever-increasing depth of knowing Jesus. It never stops. It's not just unbelievers who need to come to know Jesus. Those of us who have walked with the Lord for decades need to come to know him more deeply. And in coming to know him more deeply, he cultivates a greater experience of hope in us. And the converse is true as well, isn't it? If we neglect knowledge of him, we may find it even harder to experience the hope that is found in him, won't we? And how deeply, how badly, how crucially does the world in which we live, the age in which we live, need the experience of hope that only Christ gives. Only Christ. How deeply. He has entrusted that to us. And as we cultivate knowledge of Him, as a community and as individuals, He will enable us to carry that forward into the world as His body. So God reveals Himself through Jesus. And He does that in the context, largely and primarily, of the local church. Paul reminds us of the crucial role of the church as he describes the power of God in Christ and how God has raised Christ, talk more about this in a moment, enthroned him over all things and made him the head of his body, the church. We need to be thinking about Jesus, not in isolation, but Jesus 
as the head of his church, through whom he is at work to cultivate hope and extend it to the nations. Deeper knowledge of Christ in the context of his body cultivates a greater experience of So Paul fleshes this out with a pattern that can be seen in Christ and that is replicated in you, in the church. We need to follow Paul's thought flow here in verses 17 and 18. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, May give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So we've talked about knowing him in ever-increasing ways. The purpose of that, he says, is so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. And you get this chain of what is statements. What is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Those are not different things. They are fully faceted way of amplifying the central reality of what belongs to the people of God in Christ. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power. So there's a movement for Paul from knowing Jesus to experiencing hope and to discovering the power of God in the church. Knowledge Hope, power. And what does that power look like? Paul says, it looks like what God did in Jesus. Verse 20. The power that he wants you to know, that he wants to put at work in his people, that he is putting to work in his people, is the same power, verse 20, through which God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him, we are told, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Never ever forget, brothers and sisters, that right now, at this very moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And if you need help thinking about the implications of that, think about it this way. Right now, at the right hand of God, there is enthroned a human body. We tend to think of heaven as this just kind of spiritual place. It's not physical. We think about those two different things, but the incarnation has never come to an end. Jesus has ascended, and from heaven, he governs all things. Fully God, fully human. He is enthroned at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So the pattern that we're looking for is this resurrection and enthronement pattern. What has God done for Jesus? When the Romans crucified him, when he gave himself up, when he suffered for us, when he allowed his body 
to be beaten and broken and his blood to be shed. And he gave up his life that we may have life. And his body was committed to the grave so that death could be defeated. And that all who trust in him could be joined to him and experience the immeasurable greatness of his power. When all of that had happened, God, we are told, raised him up. Resurrection is the heart and crucial center of the Christian faith. But God didn't just raise Jesus from the dead. He enthroned Jesus. So when we're thinking about God's action toward Jesus, we need to think in terms of both the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I just say, the reality of Jesus' exalted authority has been a deep comfort to me over the last year. Uh, when I canceled in-person worship services, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my, in my entire life in ministry. Making that decision was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And over the weeks and months that followed, the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ had not given me, had not given us a situation that catches him off guard or that was not under his providential and sovereign command. It was a comfort to me to be able to say, this is the world that the Lord has given us. be his body, to be his representatives, to embody his character. The reality of Christ's exaltation should be of great comfort to his church, especially in seasons of political discord, seasons of global unrest and uncertainty. The nations may rage, but the one who sits in heaven laughs. We are not, we have not found ourselves outside of his care. And the one in whom the power of God is at work, who though he was dead, has been raised from the dead, who has been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, who has the name that is above every name that is named, not only presently, but always. All things are under his feet, and he is our head. calls us. He calls us to be His and to be His in the world. And His dominion, His reign, His rule is exercised in counterintuitive ways through His church. We'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. For now, I want you to 
kind of hold on to that pattern, resurrection and exaltation, and then we want to pay attention to how Paul describes that same pattern in the lives of believers. So whatever's true for Jesus also is made true for those who belong to Jesus. And that's where we go at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul says, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. Not a pleasant passage of scripture, but crucial. Paul understands intuitively that if we want an amplified experience and knowledge of God's grace to us in Christ, then we need an, not merely an adequate, but an amplified understanding of our own fallenness. Which is tough for us, because some of us think we're really great people. And we are a blessing to the world, and the church, and Jesus. And he's really lucky to have us on his team. Others of us who don't think that way, are all sort of thinking in their heads right now about the ones who do think that way. <laughs> and Paul reminds us, and if anyone, you know, I mean, here's a guy, like the first major Christian missionary who gave up everything for Jesus and planted churches all over Greece, who cultivated churches into Italy and Rome and who desired to plant churches all the way into Spain. I mean, this guy had this audacious goal of evangelizing like everything from Jerusalem across the northern coast of the Mediterranean to Europe, to Spain. I mean, you think like, like that's a big audacious goal. And he did a lot of it. I mean, surely this guy, we should say like, we're glad he's on our team. We're glad he's a part of what we're up to. And yet Paul counts himself among those who are outside of God's favor naturally. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. And it's not just you, he says in verse 3, it's all of us. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were, by nature, children of wrath. And that is not a pleasant thought, but friends, here's the reality. If we understand that we come into the world dead in sin and deserving the condemnation that is rightly levied against our sinfulness, when we look to Jesus and we see that He took all of that upon Himself in our place, we should be overcome with gratitude. We should be speechless and stunned that the one who would rightly extend his wrath took it upon himself for our sake. Even when we had not only held him at arm's length, we had rebelled against him. And this is a universal reality. It is deeply disturbing, stunningly unpleasant. And I would be fine <laughs> to just skip over those first four verses. The trouble with that is, if I don't read the first three verses of Ephesians 2, 
the, the, the rest of it will be meaningless to me. Like if, I, if I'm unwilling to allow the Spirit of God to amplify and illumine the depth of my depravity, then the work of Jesus Christ will be impoverished in my sight. But if I understand how deep it goes, the deadness and the darkness, then the power of God to make alive becomes magnified in my sight and experience. I need to know how bad it is in order to know how good Jesus is. So some of the most spectacular words in the whole Bible come at the beginning of Ephesians 2.4. You were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. When we were dead, In his mercy, he has taken corpses who chase after selfish folly, spiritually dead, dark people, rebels. And in his mercy, he has made us alive. He has not only made us alive when we were dead, he has raised us with Christ in verse 6, we are told, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Remember that pattern we were describing a moment ago? What's true of Jesus? What, what, what has God's power worked in Jesus? Resurrection and exaltation. What power has God worked in those who belong to Jesus? There is a new life that is analogous to the resurrection life of Jesus and an exaltation. This is the text. This doesn't come up a lot, I feel like, in some church circles. But this is what we have. Raised with him and seated with us seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that place where Christ reigns over all authority, over every name that is named. I mean, think of every authority you can possibly imagine. Just put them in a list, and you can even rank them of the greatest to the lowest if you want to. Every earth authority you can possibly imagine, spiritual, physical, governmental, ecclesial, however you want to go at it. And you take the name of Jesus, and you put his name at the very top. He's not in a different list. He's at the top of the list. Like we don't separate out. You got the spheres where Jesus is in charge, and you got the spheres where other authorities are in charge. There is one sphere. It's the world that God has made, and the word through whom it was made calls the shots. So you take every authority, every power, you put them in a list, whether you can see them or not. You put Jesus' name at the top of the list, and Paul says that that place where he is. He counts you in that place with him. Now, just let that sink in for a second. I mean, I don't know a lot of Christians. Maybe my circles are too narrow and I just haven't gotten out enough. But 
Like, how many of us really think through, like, is that the framework with which we approach our life? That the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted all things to us to administer well on his behalf. What's true of Jesus is true of us. So you can begin to see how as we we come to know the power that God has put to work in Jesus more deeply, we become to know how that same power is at work in his people, you can see how that would cultivate a deeper experience of hope. That the world is not a chaotic thing run off the rails. Jesus is at work. And he's at work through you. He desires to be at work through you. It is incumbent upon us, as it was the Ephesians, not then to resist his desires. To offer ourselves to him for his good purposes, for his good will. To know him, to experience his power, to experience his hope, and then to become agents of that hope. In a world longing, I think often, I've thought often over the last few years. (laughs) We have hope in our name, friends. (laughs) You live in Hope Hall or nearby. How much does Jesus want to fill this community with hope, our namesake, and amplify it out to the river region? and beyond to our neighbors and to the nations we are hope people because we're Jesus people and the deeper knowledge of Jesus cultivates a greater deeper more glorious amplified experience of his hope There are aspects of this for Paul that have already come into being and aspects of it that will come into reality in the future. You may have heard a couple times he mentioned you've got this age and then you've got the age to come. And it's helpful, like we don't really think quite in these categories, but in the ancient world, if you were Jewish, you probably would have thought in these categories. You've got the present age, sometimes called the present evil age, and then you've got the age to come. Present evil age is the age where people like the Roman Empire and various other tyrants before them ran around chopping off the heads of the faithful and persecuting the people of God and oppressing the people of God and just kind of manipulating the world to their own ends. And we kind of know what that feels like. We see people do that. The age to come for the Jewish people in the first century would be the age in which the Messiah comes and visibly reigns over all things. And if you read through the Psalms, especially, you can see this hope of a day when God's Messiah would come and his reign would not just be an invisible thing that is experienced by his people, but a visible reality around the world. If you read through the prophets, they anticipate this day. And Paul, immersed in those scriptures, wants to share that with the Ephesians and with us. The thing is, when Jesus showed up, The scheme got reorganized just a little bit. 
And the ages, which for most Jews in the first century had a sharp break right in the middle. The present evil age comes to an end. The age to come of the Messiah, the Messianic age, launches. We found when God raised Jesus from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and we now wait for his second coming, that those two ages, instead of kind of coming up against one, of other, uh, one, up against one another like this, began to overlap. And so the present evil age is still kind of an ex- like the world we live in, and yet Jesus is reigning. And it feels kind of counterintuitive because sometimes it's hard to see that. Nevertheless, he is reigning, and he is at work. So we've got this overlap where the present evil age is still kind of petering out, and the age to come, the Messianic age, the age of Jesus, launched 2,000 years ago. And so Paul's kind of holding that intention, and for the believer in the present age, there is a spiritual resurrection or spiritual raising up or spiritual new birth is the language that we find in some places in scripture where we are we go from spiritual death to spiritual life and that anticipates Christ returns and raises the dead and that spiritual death to spiritual life becomes physical death to physical life in the resurrection which is what happened to Jesus and what is still true of Jesus and will always be true of Jesus and will one day be true of us when he raises all of us from the dead at his coming. The second aspect of that pattern we've been following, resurrection and, you remember what it was? Exaltation. Keep it, Mr. Stern, you'll get it. You'll have it by the end. Resurrection and, good. Resurrection and exaltation. So we experience an inner new life, an inner resurrection, an inner, like, born again is where this kind of language comes from. Dead in trespasses, alive in Christ. That's the movement, that spiritual reality of being brought to life in Jesus. Anticipates the bodily reality of resurrection in Jesus. So there's that same pattern, resurrection, Jesus of us spiritually, and one day of us bodily, just like him. We talk about that enough. We also need to be embracing the rest of the pattern presently and future. So you've got Jesus' exaltation. His church has been enthroned with him. And there's an experience of that in the age to come. Or in the age, the present age. And in the age to come, that experience will be amplified and magnified in ways that Paul says are really immeasurable. So we've been enthroned with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the in the age to come, in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So whatever kindness we experience in him now in relation to the kindness we'll experience after second coming, like it's immeasurable. You might say, well, it's immeasurable now. Well, yeah more so later. So you've got resurrection and then present spiritual new birth and then future bodily resurrection. You've got Jesus' exaltation. You've got our 
exalted with him and reigning with him, and then future uh, age to come, reigning with him more so. So the question then becomes, well, like, I've been to church, I've been involved in the church, it doesn't really feel like we're reigning over anything. (laughs) So what gives? I mean, we show up and we do our thing, and like we engage in mission, and there's some, you know, good things are happening, and some programs, and some ministries. But what does it mean for the church presently to be reigning? And I think Paul fills us in at the very end here when he talks about this just this spectacular experience of God's grace received through faith, not of our own, not because we've merited it or earned it or worked in any capacity to 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 take deserve it. For Paul, God's grace in our lives that saves us is not the result of works, but it does result in good works. And I would submit to you that the way the church reigns presently is through the active doing of good. We should have an agenda where we seek to embody the authority of Jesus in ministries of good. And you see this pattern. I mean, it's everywhere in the New Testament. The apostles go around doing what? Doing good. And what does that look like? It looks like caring for widows. It looks like feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving a cup of water to the poor. It looks like evangelism. It looks like church planting. Because you see, Christ reigns over you and in you. And as more people come to know him through your ministry, his reign expands. His goal is the globe and nothing less. And so we need to be thinking in terms of how do we embody and implement the good works that Paul says have been prepared beforehand that are a way of life to which we've been called. Like this is why good works? Because you're called. <laughs> because God has taken hold of you. Because he's made you his own. Because you know him. Because he wants to cultivate hope in you and through you. And that's where this goes. The Ephesians need to know Jesus so their hope can be magnified in experience. So they can then magnify that into the world through works that honor Christ and extend life. So we need to be thinking, friends, and understanding, and not just understanding, but effectively embracing with our hearts. This is not just a cognitive, I, I got to get this through my head. This is a, I have to embrace this with my being. That is the church's job to lead people into a deeper knowledge of Christ and in knowing Christ for them to experience deeper hope. And there are no limits to that. None. That's how we organize the ministry. Like we're talking, hey, why church? Like what, what about the church? That principle governs everything we do. So when we talk about our discipleship path, you know the discipleship path. Step one, like we start with worship. At the beginning of the week, we gather to worship Jesus. We connect. Step two, Sunday school, small group, band meetings is a new thing. Some of you are already involved in that. If you're not, you'll have an opportunity soon to get involved in one. Um, we connect. Just like Jesus did with his disciples, he gave us this pattern. Here's what it looks like to, 
to gather together and form deep community. And then step three, remember, we serve locally, globally, where the Lord leads us, inside the walls, outside the walls, serve teams. There are different groups of folks who are committed. And if we follow that path, which is deeply scriptural and revealed to us in scripture, worship, connect, serve. And it's not a formula, but those involves practices that cultivate a deeper knowledge of Christ. And following that path, experiencing Christ more deeply, cultivates hope. It also cultivates connection points with each other in the world to give hope. And some of you, we talked about the baby bottles and ministry was first choice. Some of you have taken that as a new and recent step. From what I understand, you've been encouraged and you are being an encouragement and you're actually changing people's lives, like real people in crisis who are longing for hope you're doing it. You're doing it. You've got this that we're talking about. You're doing it. You have to keep doing it. And so we organize everything aimed at cultivating knowledge of Christ in worship, eyes on Jesus, experiencing Him more deeply in band meetings, Sunday school, Bible studies during the week knowing him more deeply in those ways through the church in the context of his body and then on his behalf being engaged to serve locally and globally. That process, right? And it is a process. This is not about programs. It's, hey, we need a program for that. Hey, we need, like, we don't need programs for anything. We need disciple-making processes. That's all we do. We make disciples of our children. We make disciples of our young adults. We make disciples of our growing older adults, older than we are accustomed to being adults. And we make disciples of our seniors. Like everybody is on the path of knowing Jesus more from start to finish. And everything gets built on that. And the last year has given us a lot of opportunity to really think through and consider and pray and clarify how crucial it is. What are the things that distract us and what are the things that are essential and what are the things that are crucial and how do we cultivate this deep knowledge of Jesus? And how do we cultivate hope? Our goal is to bring as many people as the Lord is kind enough to allow us into a deep experience of knowing Jesus and the hope that comes with that. It drives us, it energizes us, and the Spirit of God empowers us for that. That pattern, friends, I hope you see, is it permeates the Scriptures and it is on the top of Ephesians. Knowing Christ, experiencing hope, and seeing God work in power just like the way he raised Jesus from the dead, just like the way he's brought you from death to life, and just like the way he will flood creation with the immeasurable riches of his kindness. The invitation then, no matter where you are in your spiritual life, maybe it hasn't started, maybe you've found yourself and you're thinking, you know, I'm hearing this and I kind of, 
the, the Lord is convicting me that I haven't actually taken the first step of following Jesus. If that's where you are, he is calling. Maybe you're kind of new and you know, you're like, I know I need to know the Lord and I've got to cultivate that. Maybe you've been at it for decades and you just need a refresher. Like knowing Jesus is number one and everything else flows from that. The invitation look to Jesus, no matter where you are. Look to Jesus. And you will find him faithful. You will find the immeasurable riches of his kindness. You will find, you will find his glory. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.